It's now my privilege to turn in God's Word to Joel chapter 3 as we're continuing our study of that prophetic book. So we turn to the book of the prophet Joel, chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 through 17. This is God's holy word as he gave to Joel, and so it is inspired by him and therefore inerrant. So let's attend with reverence to the reading of God's word. Again, Joel 3, verses 1 through 17. For behold, in those days, and at that time, when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. They have also divided up my land. They have cast lots for my people, have given a boy as payment for a harlot, and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. Indeed, what have you to do with me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the coasts of Philistia? Will you retaliate against me? But if you retaliate against me swiftly and speedily, I will return your retaliation upon your own head, because you have taken my silver and my gold, and have carried into your temples my prized possessions. Also the people of Judah and the people of Jerusalem you have sold to the Greeks, that you may remove them far from their borders. Behold, I will raise them out of the place to which you have sold them, and will return your retaliation upon your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabians, to a people far off, for the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations, prepare for war, wake up the mighty men, let all the men of war draw near, let them come up, beat your plowshares into swords, and your pruning hooks into spears, let the weak say, I am strong, assemble and come all you nations." Gather together all around. Cause your mighty ones to go down there, O Lord. Let the nations be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will grow dark, and the stars will diminish their brightness. The Lord also will roar from Zion, and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people, and the strength of the children of Israel. So you shall know that I... And the Lord your God dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then Jerusalem shall be holy, and no aliens shall ever pass through her again. May we pray. Lord, we thank you for your written word, that you have given us this word that we might not have to follow our own vain imaginings and philosophies but that we might know what you will for us to know. We pray, therefore, as we dig into your word today, that we would grow in our knowledge of you and thereby in our righteous following of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. 
Well, you might recall in chapter 2 of Joel, we read of a day of the Lord that was coming upon the kingdom of Judah in Joel's day. It was, a, it was to be a time of judgment for the sins of the people, particularly by means of an invading army. We talked before about how the historical circumstances are hard to pin down. Uh, Was it the Assyrian invasion around 701 BC? Was it the conquest of Judah by the Babylonians, which started about 605 BC and culminated in the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BC? Or was it that the Lord threatened an invasion here, which never actually occurred because the people of Judah repented? So we saw some clues in chapter 2, that, that it was, we should have expected the invasion to be real because the Lord was sending uh, these invaders away as part of his, his response to the repentance of the people. My opinion is that the Assyrian invasion fits best, uh, but what we see today can, can fit the circumstances of the Babylonian invasion as well uh, without altering our interpretation of chapter 2. Uh, we saw that there would be a, a time of restoration after that invasion and or the the people's repentance if the people would repent. So if the people would repent, there would be this uh, restoration. And we noted previously that such a time of restoration particularly did occur. It fits the circumstances anyway of what we read of the reign of King Hezekiah after the Lord drove off the Assyrians. And then came Joel 2, verses 28 through 32, the pivotal passage of the book. And sometime after that restoration, there would be an outpouring of God's Spirit on his covenant people. So sometime after the restoration, in the verses up to 27, then Joel 2, 28 tells us there would be this outpouring of the Spirit on God's covenant people. And all who call on the name of the Lord, as verse 32 says, would be saved from the final day of the Lord. And we saw how that was a prediction of basically the present age, wherein the Holy Spirit is empowering his church and bringing people of all nations to call upon Jesus Christ in faith. Well, today's passage then promises that there will also be Three major things here. One, restoration and preservation for God's covenant people. Number two, judgment on the nations who persecuted God's people. And third, then, that all of this is for the Lord's glory, as well as for the purification of his church. So let's just go through those points. We see here first, restoration and preservation for God's covenant people is promised in this passage. Look at verse 1. For behold, in those days, and at that time, when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem. Now, the expression those days and uh, that time are really very general terms in the Hebrew. What days, what time, you might ask. Well, contextually, we see it's the same general time frame as the last passage, which we saw was basically the present age. And remember, the time marker set in Joel 2, 28-32. Joel 2, 28 says, It shall come to pass afterward. So, we saw last time that the time frame in question can begin any time after the restoration spoken of in uh, 
chapter 2, verses 18 through 27. And then Joel 2.31 says these things will be before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. So within the time frame from this restoration, uh, either in the days of King Hezekiah, uh, or possibly after the Babylonian captivity, which some language here hints that that would be considered part of this era as well, the Lord promised to pour out his spirit and also bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem. In relation to the Babylonian captivity, uh, that, of course, began in terms of the bringing back of captives. That began uh, literally around 539 B.C. when King Cyrus of Persia, after conquering the Babylonian Empire, decreed that the Jews could return from their captivity to Jerusalem. They were able to leave Babylonia and come back. Now we've also seen that Jerusalem, though, can be a figure in prophecy for the New Covenant Church. In which case, those captives to sin and death are being brought to Christ in the present age. That would fit as well, what Joel is talking about here. But when we read Judah, though, Judah's included here, Judah usually refers to the earthly people, those whom we call commonly Jews, which is a word we actually get from the name for the tribe in the kingdom of Judah. So what Joel is predicting here, I think, could be the, the same thing of which Paul writes in Romans 11, verses 25 and 26. Not just the ending of the Babylonian captivity, but what the apostle says is, blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. There's a lot to what Paul is saying in Romans 11, but for our purposes today, in short, he's saying that once the full number of Gentiles whom God is calling out of the world into his church, who he's elected for salvation, have come into his church, He's going to bring a large number of those of earthly Israel back to Christ. That way, all Israel, Paul says, all of God's covenant people, whether Jew or Gentile in their biological heritage, will be saved. That seems to fit very well with what Joel has to say in this passage. Because verse 2 says that once these captives have been brought back, all the nations will be judged by God. But before we get to that, we see further promises of restoration in the first part of verse 7, for example. Behold, I will raise them out of the place to which you have sold them. The nations sold the Jews into slavery in various places. More on that in a bit. But God will raise them up as it were. In light of what we just saw, that will ultimately be fulfilled when Jews come in large numbers to faith in Christ Jesus. And we see the preservation of God's covenant people in verse 16 also. The Lord also will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. 
The heavens and earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So even while the Lord rages in judgment on unbelievers and the earth shakes, as it were, because of it, his Israel will be preserved. And take note of that difference. It's not just Judah being preserved here, but Israel. Think of Galatians 3.29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. If you belong to Christ, Paul says, you are a child of Abraham. And so in Galatians 6.16, Paul refers to Christians, including Gentiles and Jews as well, as the Israel of God. So God promises restoration and preservation for all his covenant people in this passage. But secondly, he also promises judgment. So while he preserves those who call upon the name of the Lord, those who, as we saw last time, call upon Christ in faith, he promises judgment for those who don't. Verse 2. I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. I will enter into judgment with them there. On account of my people, my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, they have also divided up my land. Now the the location of this valley of Jehoshaphat has been much debated in church history. Some have identified it as the Kidron Valley between the Mount of Olives and the Temple or other valleys in the vicinity of Jerusalem, but as this is the the only verse of the whole Bible that uses the expression Valley of Jehoshaphat, uh, the geography is, is simply uncertain. The Kidron Valley might play a role here. It might be plausible or another valley near Jerusalem, since Jerusalem is spoken of in various scriptures as the place from which final judgment will come. Uh, But we just can't really know for sure. What's probably important, though, here isn't so much figuring out the geography as the meaning of the word Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat means Yahweh judges. So this valley, wherever it might be, is a place of judgment. It's a place of God's judgment. It's synonymously called the valley of decision in verse 14. That is, as in a decision of a judge. A judge in his courtroom makes a decision. It's a judgment. So this is a valley of decision, the valley of judgment, the valley of God's judgment. God will judge the nations the peoples of the earth, according to how they have treated his covenant people. Notice in verse 12 also we see, let the nations be wakened. That could be a hint at this being resurrection for judgment. They persecuted God's people, whether old covenant Israel or the new covenant church. They scattered them among the nations. The Assyrians virtually depopulated the northern kingdom of Israel, transplanting most of the Israelites to other parts of their empire. The Babylonians did much the same. 
to the inhabitants of the southern kingdom, which was not just the tribe of Judah, but people who escaped from all the other tribes had gone to Judah. The Greek empires moved Jews about wherever they pleased. The Romans destroyed Jerusalem and forbade the Jews from returning there. They've been chased out of country after country. Uh, look at the, the history of Western Europe in the Middle Ages, and every once in a while you'll find kings who would find that their, their coffers were getting drained. And So an easy way to, to make some money was to expel the Jews from their nation and confiscate all their property. And then think of how many Christians, those who belong to spiritual Israel, have been harassed, forced to flee cities and nations to find peace and freedom to worship biblically elsewhere. And of course, in history we see as the Lord speaks here through Joel, the land was divided by empire after empire, and it remains divided. Moreover, the lives of God's people have been considered cheap. Verse 3, they have cast lots for my people, have given a boy as payment for a harlot and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. And God here speaks of the Phoenicians and the that is, the northern Canaanites, the people of Tyre and Sidon as well, as, the, as well as the Philistines, as examples of those whom he will bring under judgment. They will not be able to prevent God's judgment no matter how they might struggle against it. Verse 4, Indeed, what have you to do with me, O Tyre and Sidon? And all the coasts of Philistia, will you retaliate against me? Of course, nobody can retaliate really against God. What does this really mean? It means they're persecuting God's people. That's how the world retaliates against God. They, they come after people who look like Christ. But if you retaliate against me, God says, swiftly and speedily, I will return your retaliation upon your own head. Why? Because they've plundered his people, he says. Verse 5, because you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried into your temples my prized possessions. They've sold God's people themselves into slavery. Verse 6, also the people of Judah and the people of Jerusalem you have sold to the Greeks that you may remove them far from their borders. God promises to return such treatment, such ill treatment of his people upon their persecutors. Verse 7 and 8. Behold, I will raise them up, that is raise up the persecuted people, out of the place to which you have sold them, and will return your retaliation upon your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah. And they will sell them to the Sabians, to a people far off, for the Lord has spoken. Seeking to get back at Judah for its dominance of the region, the Phoenicians and the Philistines sold Jews who fled the Babylonians, for example, into slavery all around the Mediterranean. 
But the restored Judah was later able to defend itself. Their attackers were the ones who ended up sold into slavery. The nations will vainly resist this judgment. Let me, before moving on there, just note, uh, this isn't giving a blanket permission for slavery. In the Bible, we find that that uh, the kind of slavery that we had in, in American history is, is known as man-stealing and is, is forbidden by God, where people are just kept in, uh, treated as chattel, uh, kept in slavery in perpetuity, they and their descendants. Uh, but there were certain crimes that somebody could be enslaved for, and one of them was attacking, uh, waging an illegitimate war against God's people. And so we see that happening here. Their attackers being sold into slavery. But the nations will vainly resist this judgment from God, but God dares them to try to challenge his people. You try to challenge them in a war, he says, verse 9 uh, through 11. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. Assemble and come, all you nations. And gather together all around. Cause your mighty ones to go down there, O Lord. So there's God's mighty ones going down to meet the nations. Notice a couple of interesting things there, though. For one thing, these people are told to do the exact opposite of Isaiah 2, verse 4. We're probably far more familiar with that. You might have heard me reading this and think, isn't that backwards? Because you're probably familiar with Isaiah 2, verse 4. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. For another thing, the implication here in Joel is that these nations do not have weapons, or at least they don't have enough. Weapons aren't available, so what are they doing? They're, they're going to have to beat their, their plowshares into swords and their spears into pruning hooks. To my mind, that suggests that what's being talked about here comes after a time when people have already beaten their sword into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. That is, we can expect a time in the future when the gospel so prevails in the world that technologies formerly used for destruction, for warfare, are only used for productive things, especially agriculture here. We see swords into plowshares, spears into pruning hooks, a millennial golden age, if you will. But following that, that time, there will be a great apostasy and rebellion against Christ, and people will have to take their plowshares and beat them into swords, and their pretty hooks and beat them into spears. The rebels, as it were, will, will take the technologies that are used for peacetime and turn them into wartime technologies. They'll reject the reign of Christ and his church and rise up in rebellion, challenging the Lord's mighty ones. But they cannot be successful. Instead, they will receive judgment from God. Think of Psalm 2, which says, The, the Lord in heaven laughs. 
his, his laughing and derision at those who think they can challenge him. Verses 12 and 13, let the nations be wakened. Again, possibly a reference here to resurrection too. Let the nations be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, so the valley where the Lord judges. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come down, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Wicked nations are ripe for judgments, like grain ready to be harvested or grapes ready to be pressed. We'll take the time to point out how many scriptures use that kind of imagery for judgment. The wine press and the harvest. Final judgment is, a, is pictured here then in, in verses 14 through 16. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will grow dark and the stars will diminish their brightness. The Lord also will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heaven and earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. Remember the, the darkening of sun, moon, and stars we saw before is a picture of judgment. Amos 5.18, just to give a quick example. Woe to you who desire the days of the Lord. For what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. What I think is pictured here is the same thing that we see in Joel 20, verses 7 through 15. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle. There you're beating their plowshares into swords and their spears into pruning hooks, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, whose, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. The books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So God promises judgment for the nations who persecuted his people. For the world system that has been against Christ. But also we see here third, in addition to preserving his people through this, but judging those who are outside of his covenant people, we see that God promises that all of this will be for his glory and for the purification of his church. 
In other words, it's for his glory and your good. Verse 17. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then Jerusalem shall be holy, and no aliens shall ever pass through her. Again, the only survivors, as it were, in this scenario are God's people. And they will have no doubt that he is the Lord and that he is their God. So you will know, not you will guess, not you, will, you will probably be sure, no, you will know that I am the Lord, your God. They will know that he dwells in their midst. There won't be any guesswork here either, any wishful thinking. Dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. 2 Corinthians 6.16 You are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Think of the, the restored Eden here. Where God used to walk with Adam and Eve. And here he promises to do that again with you. God's people will be holy, set apart unto God. Then Jerusalem shall be holy, he says. And no aliens, so in other words, no one who doesn't belong there, no aliens shall ever pass through her again. These are some of God's promises to his people. He will restore and preserve you if your trust is in Jesus Christ, if you call on the name of the Lord as we saw last time. He will judge the nations on your behalf. He will accomplish this for his glory and for your well-being, your purification ultimately. So believe his promises. Hope in them. And live as though you know they are true. Let's pray. Lord, build up our trust in you for you are faithful. Restore and preserve your church. Judge her persecutors. And do all for your glory and for our purification that we might be each day more conformed to the image of Christ. And be built up in that faith that we would know, indeed, that these things are true. And look forward to them eagerly with the hope that we must have in Christ Jesus. For we pray in his name. Amen.